We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. For almost four decades, anyone traveling along Route 16, close to Fayetteville, West Virginia, could see a billboard bearing the grainy images of five children, all of whom had dark hair and somber eyes. Their names and ages, Maurice 14, Martha 12, Louis 9, Jenny 8, and Betty 5, were also inscribed beneath the billboard, along with rumors about what may have happened to them. Fayetteville was and continues to be a small town with a main street that doesn't extend more than 100 yards, and rumors have always weighed more heavily on the case than actual proof. But the following was true. On the eve of Christmas in 1945, George and Jenny Sodder and nine of their ten children went to bed. One son was away in the army. Around 1am, a fire broke out. George uh, and Jenny and four of their children escaped, but the other five would never be seen again. Did they perish in the flames, or was there something a bit more sinister at play? Join us as we discuss the mystery of the missing Sodder children. Hello, fellow weirdos. It's Dom. And Amy. And welcome to this week's bonus episode of Horror House. We hope you're having a great week and we want to remind you that you're awesome and you're beautiful and you're fucking badass and you're sexy as fuck and you're kicking all of the ass. Just remember that. And we are so very, very happy uh, to have you here and that you've taken time out of your day to listen to this little bonus episode. Amy, my dear, how are you doing? I'm delightful. Thank you so much for inquiring after my welfare. You're welcome. I am a caring co-host. Don't, don't listen to people who say I'm not. <laughs> I don't think anyone says that. I think if anyone's going to be accused of not caring out of the two of us, it's always going to be me. So it's you're doing great. Oh, shush. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> you're doing good, honey. Keep going. Look at you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when it comes to um, supporting our little show, um, there are a few ways you can do that. One of those ways is to donate to the show in the link on the Instagram bio and in the show notes of this episode, you will find a link to a page called Buy Me A Coffee. Uh, What is Buy Me A Coffee? Well, to put it short, sweet, and simply, you head to buy me a coffee, you buy us one coffee or two coffees or three coffees, uh, however many you desire, and it's not actually coffee, but it's money. So it's a fun way of donating to the show to help us produce more content to, you know, who knows in the future, maybe do live shows, you know, you can come out and see us on stage, which would be just... A madness, I'm sure. <laughs> that, would just, that would be mad. <laughs> that would be the most insane hour and a half of your life. Um, but yes, it is a great way to financially support the show. So if you feel like you want to donate, um, no, uh, you don't have to. But if you would like to, that would be grand. 
Um, and the best thing about Buy Me A Coffee is there's no monthly subscription. So you're not going to have to worry about a direct debit coming out of your month, uh, bank account every month. Happy days. Um, Amy, would you like to talk about another way that they can support our humble little show? Of course I would. There are so, so many ways that you can support us. But the one that I'd like to talk about is the one that, do you know what? If you just ever found yourself in a situation where you're like, you know what? I need some new clothes, but also I really want to support my favorite podcast. Maybe you should have a little look at our merch store because we know it's a common problem. We know that supporting a good cause and needing new clothes are things that happen to the best of us all the time. Just always happens. Absolutely. So Absolutely. we've decided to solve that problem by giving you kick-ass merch. So head to the store, get yourself some, support us, make us happy. But also, and more importantly, make yourself happy too. Because that's what we're here for. Absolutely. That's what I have to say At Horror that. House, <laughs> we want to make everybody happy. We want uh, this podcast to be one big happy family. Um, oh, wait, no, that sounds quite culty, doesn't it? Do you know what? We're to a normal a person, that wouldn't sound culty. But because all we do is talk about cults. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit culty. And also culty just sounds like a weird word. Yeah, right. Be a happy horror house hottie. Oh no, that sounds that still sounds culty. I don't know how I can phrase this without sounding like we're just one massive. Buy some merch. Cult. There you go. Buy some merch. Um, don't join a cult. <laughs> For this week's bonus episode, we are um, doing a little bit something that I haven't done in a little while, um, and that's a little unsolved mystery. Because who doesn't love an unsolved mystery? I love an unsolved mystery. Uh, granted when i watch the show unsolved mysteries and the mystery has the absolute cheek to be unsolved i'm like what the fuck why is it itself the audacity <laughs> to be unsolved right how the, dare you the gore <laughs> i wanted <laughs> solved mysteries <laughs> I mean, um, arguably so yes, they're solved are they even a mystery unsolved. anymore no no that that is that is fair that is true the, it's yeah, the unsolved mystery the concept paradox. of the show it is. Uh, my brain is too tired to deal with paradoxes. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll stick with the unsolved ones for now. I mean, my brain can't deal with simple things when I'm when I've had a solid five hours of sleep instead of three. But yes. Um, now you know this is quite an intriguing one. Um, I know. You know, I've watched videos about it, and I, I know I knew a little bit about it, and I thought, you know what, this is perfect for a little bonus episode. So, Amy, are you ready to talk about the mystery of the Sodder family? I am so, so very ready. Lovely stuff. So, Giorgio uh, Sodi was born in Tula, um, Sardinia, Italy in 1895 uh, and emigrated to the United States at the age of 13 in 1908. Uh, Giorgio was left on his own after his older brother, who had uh, accompanied him to Ellis Island, would return to Italy. Uh, George, as he would later become um, to be known, would rarely discuss the reason for his decision to leave his native country for the remainder of his life, which is it's sort of a jumping off point of one of the many theories about this case, um, is that George would pretty much flat out refuse to to disclose why he left Italy. That's a bit sus, isn't it? That could be a it's a little bit sus. Um, that could be anything so, as well. That could be anything um, from like, oh, work. I didn't like it, to I've killed multiple people and I have to leave. Like, there's any 
level on that scale that that could be at. Yeah. Um, he found work on the Pennsylvania railroads, uh, carrying water and supplies to the laborers. And after a few years, moved to Smithers, West Virginia. <laughs> That's a fantastic Don't do a Simpsons reference. For a, for a place. Oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> I really wanted to. <laughs> Smithers. <laughs> I, I bet you as soon as I was, as soon as you heard me go Smithers, you're like, fuck, I need to stop him. I need to stop him now. <laughs> as soon as I heard you say Smithers, every bone, every muscle in my body just clenched. And I was like, nope, hold it in, hold it in, hold it in. And then I couldn't. Um, he was intelligent and ambitious. Um, and after working as a driver for a, uh, for a time, he started his own trucking business and began transporting coal and freight as well as dirt for um, construction. One day, he would enter the music box um, in a nearby store, which may have sold music and boxes, if you go by that name, uh, where he met boxes uh, Jenny music. Boxes for the Music, Music for the Boxes. If you needed boxes, if you needed music, then just go to the music box. Have um, we got a store for you? Where he would, <laughs> um, where he would meet Jenny uh, Cipriani, who had emigrated from Italy when she was three. The pair would get married, and between 1923 and 1943, Jenny would give birth to 10 children. Wow. Jesus Christ. All right, key Jenny's vagina. <laughs> right. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of pushing out babies in a 20-year span. The last, the last like, three just walked out, twirling the umbilical course. <laughs> I'm here. I'm Those here. pelvic floors <laughs> are just gone. They're completely obliterated by that point. <laughs> by 1943, just Jesus nothing works Christ. down there. It's like chucking a hot dog down a hallway at that point. The Sodders settled in a two-story timber frame home uh, two miles north of the town of Fayetteville, which was close by and had a sizable Italian immigrant uh, population. Um, George's business prospered and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around, in the words of one local official. However, um, George had strong views on a variety of topics, and he wasn't afraid to voice them, which occasionally made him unpopular. Um, an example of this was his being unafraid uh, to voice his stark opposition to the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, um, which uh, caused quite a few heated arguments with other Italian immigrants. Hmm. Probably should have kept that one to himself. Yeah, maybe not, not a terrible person to be against. Immigrant. Oh no, absolutely not. But yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Like, I mean, I can see why he would be very uh, vocal about his opposition. But part of me is just like, ooh, <laughs> maybe just simmer down. Maybe just <laughs> you know, it's not an argument that you're going to solve today. So yeah, maybe yeah, just yeah. <laughs> just just calm. Um, so a life insurance salesman came to visit George in October 1945, um, and after being uh, rejected by George. He was like, I don't want your goddamn life insurance. Get the fuck out. Um, <laughs> the salesman would threaten his home and would say, quote, uh, your home would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed because of the dirty remarks you've made about Mussolini, which is why I said maybe Jesus. simmer down on your <laughs> concerns about That's a Mussolini. pretty aggressive sales technique, mate. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's going to win many people over with that. I think he needs to work on his salesmanship. I mean, in fairness, <laughs> maybe right it's the way to go, to go for life insurance. 
like get life insurance or I'll Maybe. kill you. <laughs> right. It could George is like, damn, you 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 drive a hard bargain, my friend. Death or I insurance. don't really like my options here, buddy, so I guess I'll be getting some life insurance. <laughs> um so a second guest who came to the house purportedly looking for work used the opportunity to go around the rear of the house and warn George that two fuse boxes will quote create a fire someday. So if you take those two um, quotes in consideration, coincidence or not? Makes it really surprising when they all drown. <laughs> I'm getting, there's like a massive curveball in this outline just being like, there was no house fire. They just drowned. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Mystery solved. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we got there. Been fun. Till next time. <laughs> so. Let's talk about that faithful night on Christmas Eve, 1945, shall we? So the oldest daughter, Marion, had been employed in a dime store in the heart of Fayetteville when she decided to surprise her three younger sisters, Martha, Jenny and Betty, with some brand new toys that she had purchased for them as gifts. Um, Jenny, uh, who's the mother, um, allowed them to remain up for a little bit later as long as the two oldest boys who were still awake, uh, who were Louis and Maurice, remembered to feed the chickens and put the cows in their stores before going to bed themselves. George, uh, John and George Jr., very imaginative uh, imaginative name. You know, I love it when... I've, I've already forgotten like, yes. them. George, George, George and John Jr., George. George, John, John, George. What <laughs> the names? Get back in your cow stall, John, John, George. Jimmy, Bob, George, George. Um, uh, it was George, John... And George Jr. Right, were already what asleep. I said at all. Um, <laughs> George, wait, what? John, you were... George, John, and John Jr. Oh my God. I'm no, sorry. George, it doesn't really matter. John. So George was the dad, and then John and George Jr. were two of the boys. Oh, um, got it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so who's Steve? We got there. <laughs> Steve is the, Steve's the child that we don't talk about. <laughs> Steve's the chicken. Yeah, Steve's the one that they cut it off to the mental institution and they don't acknowledge his existence. That's Steve. <laughs> Steve's out back working on the fuse box. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, George, John and George Jr. Um, were already asleep as the two boys uh, had spent the afternoon working uh, with their father. Jenny would take Sylvia upstairs um, after reminding the kids of the last few duties and mother and daughter would both go to bed. Uh, so the harsh ring of a telephone would break the silence around 12.30 on Chris, uh, a.m. on Christmas morning, after the kids had finished opening a few presents and everyone had fallen asleep. Jenny would hurry to respond, um, and when she picked up the phone, a strange female voice would request a strange name. In the background, loud laughter and glass clinking could be heard, um, and Jenny would state, you have the wrong number before hanging up did Weird, it say you're strange. going to die in seven days i told you not to watch the video jenny the video that definitely existed in 1943 45 even <laughs> <Of> course. <laughs> it's actually just one of those like little you know she, she got the blu-ray version it, it is worth noting to be fair someone did actually call a wrong number so as uh, jenny would creep back to her bed she observed that the curtains were open and all of the lights in the lower level were still on uh, the front door was also unlocked. 
Um, she assumed that the other children were in bed upstairs when she observed Marion dozing off on the living room sofa. Um, so after turning out the lights, closing the curtains and locking the door, she would go back to her room to go back to the land of sleep and dreams. She was just starting to nod off when she heard a loud single bang on the roof, followed by a rolling sound. She went back to sleep when she didn't hear anything more. However, um, she was awakened once more sometime later, and this time it was by thick smoke creeping into her room. That's a bit problematic. That's not a good sign when you see thick smoke just casually strolling into your room. Yeah, it's also particularly annoying when it's loud smoke, so it wakes you up. (laughs) This is is a genuine concern of mine, right? I don't sleep when I can't, I can't fall asleep easily. But once I'm asleep, I am asleep. So there is no way in hell that a thick smoke is going to wake me up. Unless it comes into the room screaming my name. Basically, what I'm saying here is I die in a fire. I'm a light sleeper, so this would definitely wake me up. As their rooms began to fill with heavy smoke, a terrified Jenny would arouse George, and the two of them would run out of the room. Uh, across the hallway from their bedroom was the den, and according to Jenny, the back wall had already been engulfed in flames. As they ran out the front door, uh, George and Jenny would call for their children, asking them to all leave the house. Uh, When Marion awoke, she rushed to her parents' bedroom to grab three-year-old Sylvia. Um, They managed to escape the flaming house and ran to their parents outside. At this point, point, um, John and George Jr. would wake up and realize what was happening. Um, It's impossible to... Uh, precisely reproduce what happened due to the slight differences in the many accounts of the events that have um, been told about that night. For example, one account states that uh, John and George Jr. attempted to get the attention of the other children on the second floor merely by yelling to them before running down the stairs themselves. Uh, Another um, version of the events is that they allegedly heard one of their younger brothers call back to them in a, another version of event, uh, another version of events, John is said to have roused the kids before he and George Jr. fled. The fact that the boys barely made it down the stairs before it caught fire does not appear to be a subject of debate, however. And as a result, both would suffer um, from burns. The younger children needed to escape, uh, obviously. So George and his two older sons would hurry to find a ladder uh, to lean against the house. However, the ladder, which was typically close by, was strangely absent. Um, George, uh, with obviously desperation uh, starting to creep in at this point, would try to back up a vehicle uh, to the house. But for some reason, neither truck on the property would start. This was rather baffling to George, uh, as um, the cars had never previously experienced any problems with, with starting. It has been speculated that George's eagerness to start the trucks may have unintentionally caused uh, caused him to flood the engines. There's a a a few coincidences. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? There's the ladder that's suspiciously not there. There's the cars that would normally not have an issue with starting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's all getting a bit sus. It's all getting a bit questionable. Um, With the situation becoming graver, by the minute, he would rack his mind for other ways to save his children. He attempted to scoop some water out of a rain barrel. Unfortunately, 
due to it being December, it was frozen solid. His daughter, Marion, ran to a neighbor's house to try to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but she got no answer. A neighbor who saw the fire called from a nearby pub, but once more could not get through to the fire department. Pretty exasperated at this point, the neighbor would drive into town and locate Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who started Fayette's um, version of a fire alarm, which is the most <laughs> the most frustrating system I think I've ever, ever come across. So essentially, this system was a phone tree system in which one firefighter would call another, who would then call another, who would then call another, and so on and so on, um, which... Is, Until is what? The, most... the fire just magically burnt out on its own? That's, that's, I that's, how is that, that's not a system. system. Uh... <laughs> Let's just all has, have a massive that's chat ridiculous. while this fire burns and potentially kills all of our friends. Right. That's that's a good plan. I like it. Yes. Let's do it. God damn it. Get a, get, some, get a WhatsApp group chat going on Fayetteville. <laughs> damn phone tree system. Going get on. off your phone. Um, I mean, there's a fire. Just don't be on the phone. It's easy. I can just see this system, just like one firefighter being like, uh, hey, yo, uh, so just the, the solar house is on fire. We should probably like, you know, hustle. And then the firefighter who he's told is just like, right, hold on. Hold on. Let me let me call Dave. And then Dave's like, oh, shit. All right. Let me call Steve. Yeah, which is fine. Like, I understand that all of the firefighters need to be informed of the situation. But what's the end game? Like, is the end game okay? Exactly. We speak to the person with the water. Like, I, how does calling yeah. each other help? <laughs> I just don't understand this phone tree system in any way, shape, or form. It needs work. Um, it gets better, Amy. It gets better because even oh, though good. the fire department was only 2.5 miles away, bear in mind that the fire started at, I think it was around 1 a.m. Um, so, as I say, even though the fire department was only 2.5 miles away, the fire crew did not show up at the Sodor residence until 8 a.m. the following morning. Seven hours it okay. took me to go 2.5 miles. I mean, I think the entire fire department maybe to... needs to change their phone tower or something because it's taking a while to connect. Um, I mean, how did they travel the, there? Was the... it like, were they just strolling? Were they just walking with buckets of water? I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how that happens. I don't know. I could have crawled to the house faster <laughs> i could have maybe it's just the wasn't a high priority seven hours <laughs> see this seems suspicious right so okay when we do whenever we talk about an unsolved thing my mind automatically goes into like okay i'm suspicious mode and okay time to solve the crime mode right and this is suspicious because nothing fucking takes long like two and a half miles in eight hours is mm. not is not normal even if you're not rushing and you're just going at a normal speed, you can get there quicker. So the fact that it's taking eight hours, I'm like, is the whole town in on it? Yeah. There's there's a few nuggets that, that might, you know, give give credence to that theory. There are a few things in this episode yes. that you might be like, ooh. I love nuggets. Nuggets are good. Oh man, now I now I want a now I want a twenty box share share box of nuggets. Oh man, I'm gonna get Mackies after this, I know it. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Have corn ones. Get corn nuggets. They're better for you. They taste the same. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not, I don't know why I've gone off on this tangent. But <laughs> so, say so yes. The fire department. Were, it took them seven hours to to travel two and a half miles. It's just insane. Like 
what what did the when when they rocked up to the house at eight a.m., which obviously was a smoldering wreck at this yeah. point. What there was just what did they? Sh- yeah, did they just rock up to the house at eight a.m. and be like, "Cool, right, we're here. How can we help?" And George is just like, "Mate, look at the fucking house. What the, what, is, what is going?" The on? fire chief just goes over and looks at the smoldering pile of ashes and goes, "Yeah, I reckon you've had a fire there. It's unfortunate." Yeah, I was literally about to be like, "The chief is going to go over to the building, look at it, and then just like touch it and be like, yeah, that was a fire. That was, I think." <laughs> <laughs> Can confirm. Fire did that. Fire. <laughs> The fact that the fire department was understaffed, possibly because of the holiday, and the fact that this was um, during World War II may have played a part in that. And also, in addition to that, the fact that Fire Chief F.J. Morris had problems locating someone who could operate the fire truck because he couldn't do it himself may have also played an issue. Worst <laughs> fire chief ever. It's, it's not a good sign when your fire chief is... You know, just like, oh, oh, wait, no, hang on. I need to find someone who can who can drive the fire truck. Shit, sorry. Literally, the fire um, chief can't operate right. the one piece of equipment that is needed to put out a fire. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's that a war is, on, but yeah, come on. It's, it's not a war on common sense. <laughs> I'm using that. Oh, war on common sense. I love that. Uh, yeah, that's in my vocabulary now. So, yes, um, what what we glean from from that little... That little section is one, that fire alert system is garbage. Two, when your fire chief can't drive the fire truck, that is an issue. And three, in summary, being seven hours late to a fire that's two and a half miles away is kind of poor. Do better, Fayetteville Fire Department. I do wonder at what point they should have gotten into like the process of getting to the fire and just gone, do you know what, it's probably not worth it now. Yeah, I just... Why even rock up at fucking 8 a.m.? <laughs> like, what, what could you do? I just don't understand. Um, the surviving sodders who had managed to escape the fire were left with no alternative but to watch their house burn down and fall apart over the course of the following 45 minutes. On Christmas morning, the rubble was searched, but it would later be disputed as to how thoroughly it was searched um, and what specifically was discovered there. Modern fire experts claim that the search was, at best, cursory. Nothing serious, nothing thorough. This definitely supports our theory. So the police chief got there, went, yeah, a little look. Yeah, that's a fire. That was a fire, that. And that was it. That is what cursory means. It's not covering themselves in glory, the fire department at the moment. Um, no. You know, they've got a, this phone tree system. Took him seven hours to travel two and a half miles. Um, the fire chief couldn't even operate the fire truck. Like they, they do a very half-ass search of the of the wreckage when they get there. Oof. Yeah, and presumably at this great. point, like the the parents are pretty distraught and like freaking out. It's not like the fire chief's going to get there and they're just going to, you know, be standing on the side keeping stum. They're going to be screaming about the fact that their five yeah. children were in the house or that they don't know where they are or whatever so a cursory yeah. glance oh yeah absolutely like help me my five children are missing and the fire chief comes over and goes well they're not in that so don't know what you mean want me to do about yeah. it <laughs> yeah you know it's not like you know this the you know like george and jenny are going to be like oh no okay it's fine it's all good it's all you got here in the end they're going to be like why the fuck has it taken you seven hours to get two and a half <laughs> miles fuck like, have you been honestly 
the sodders were informed at 10 a.m. that same morning that no bones had been discovered, which was contrary to what could have been anticipated if the other kids had been inside. Another account claims that they did discover a few bones and internal organs, but they decided to keep that from the family and not tell them, which is a pretty shitty thing to do, if that's true. Yeah, also why? Why is that the sort of thing that they need to be given? That's confusing. Um, George was cautioned by the state fire marshal's office not to intervene in any manner until they had a chance to conduct their own investigation. Um, they went on to determine that the kids had perished in the fire and made the decision not to look into the case any further. The following day, a coroner's inquest was held and it was determined that the fire was probably brought on by defective wiring. However, however, the Sodders thought that this was a pretty implausible explanation considering they had just had the house rewired and examined. Sodders are like, nah. Nah, 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 nah. Sorry, mate. We just had some rewiring done. Yeah. Yeah, we just had the sparky and there's no way. (laughs) (laughs) On December the 30th, uh, death certificates for the five missing children were released. Uh, The local newspaper reported that all the remains had been discovered, uh, but later, in the same exact story, said that only a portion of one body had been located. While their surviving children did attend the funeral on January the 2nd, 1946, George and Jenny were understandably too wrapped up in grief to attend themselves. Yeah, that's a bit inconsistent. Like, newspapers like, yeah, all remains been discovered. Yeah, all of them. And then, like, literally in the same story, just like, oh, no, wait, no, sorry, sorry. No, uh, only a portion of one. Sorry, only a portion of one body. Disregard the previous. Yeah, it kind of feels like, oh, this is going to sound bad, but it kind of feels like your mum's just made dinner for three people and then you invite three friends over and they're like, oh, we'll make it stretch. It'll be fine. It's like, oh, we only found bounds of yeah. bones of one and a yeah. half kids, but we, we're not, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll spread them out a bit. We'll make it look life lives. Don't worry about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Sodders made an effort to go on with their lives as best or as normal as they could over the following uh, following years. Of course, they were still in mourning, but they seemed to accept that the, that five of their children had perished in the fire. This, however, would start to change as the Sodder family would start to question the events and the official findings of that fateful evening. And before we get into that, I think that is a good place to have a quick commercial break so you can hear from some other very, 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 very amazing podcasts. Uh, Amy, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I'm already pretty confused, so I need a break before I get more confused. (laughs) Lovely stuff. Um, We shall see you back here in a few minutes. Hi, creeps and freaks. Creepies and freakies. I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And we are In the Nick of Crime. We come to you weekly with true crime, some spook spooks, and a little bit of comedy. We focus on being a voice for victims, but we also like to rake the offenders through the coals. We can never really seem to take ourselves too seriously, but we do hope you'll join us. So keep it creepy and stay freaky, and we will see you next Tuesday. Bye! In the 1970s, four women were found dead in their apartments in London, Ontario. 
At first, pathologists determined they died of natural causes. But when three more women turned up dead, the community discovered something far more sinister at play. Listen to Dark Adaptation Podcast to hear how a deranged killer scaled buildings to enter their victims' bedrooms. From the darkest corners of the most haunted places in the world to the lesser-known cases in true crime, we take you on a journey through the twisted and bizarre. And for larger cases, our resident astrologist delves into the charts and skies of major events and people for a true crime podcast with a cosmic twist. Tune in every Monday to Dark Adaptation wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll catch you on the dark side. Welcome back, uh, everybody. Let's dive deeper into this um, rather astonishing mystery. So George and Jenny questioned why, if an electrical issue had started the fire, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's initial phases when the power should have shut off. In addition to that, um, 75 feet or 23 meters away, at the bottom of an embankment, they would discover the ladder that had been removed from the side of the home the night of the fire. The Sodders were informed by a telephone uh, repairman that their wires appeared to have been cut rather than burned. A witness reported seeing a man allegedly stealing a block and tackle used to remove car engines from the scene of the fire. That would obviously explain why the vehicles would refuse to start. He acknowledged the theft and claimed responsibility for cutting the phone connection because he mistook it for a power line, but he denied any involvement in the fire. However, there is no record of the suspect's identity and it has never been made clear why he would have intended to take the block and tackle while also attempting to cut any power lines to the Sodder residence. I'm not a fan of too many coincidences or coincidi, as I like to call yes. them. Yes, <laughs> The elder Sodder sons also remembered something strange. Uh, just before Christmas, they saw a man sitting in a car along US Highway 21, monitoring the young children as they returned from uh, returned home from school. Yeah. A bit concerning. A little Definitely bit. A little bit, bit concerning. concerning. Um, I mean, even without a fire, a man monitoring five young children is concerning. Yes. One day, Sylvia would discover a hard rubber object in the yard while the family was visiting the location of the house. Jenny, obviously, remembered hearing the rolling noise and the harsh thump on the roof. Um, George would come to the conclusion that it was a napalm pineapple bomb that was used in combat. So, yeah, oh. someone may have just chucked a, chucked a bomb on their roof. Well, I mean, this family really weren't very liked, were they? If, like, all of these theories are ones that came up themselves, they're really not having a good time. Yeah. You know, when I, was, when I said that he was very outspoken about his views on Mussolini and wasn't afraid to voice it, that's why I was like, Oh, maybe simmer down, George. Yeah. You're in an Italian immigrant community and they're probably a bit pro-Mussolini. Yeah. I mean, I've got, a, I mean, I don't want to jump the gun here, but I've got a couple of theories. So let's, I want to learn right. a little we'll, bit more we'll, and then we'll find yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. When we wrap up, we will, we will talk about our theories and what we think. <laughs> um, uh, so Jenny herself was perplexed as to how five children could perish in a fire without leaving any remains like just any not not bones no flesh no remains whatsoever um she performed an experiment by igniting animal bones such as chicken beef and pork chop bones to see if the flames would consume them what she would always end up with was a pile of burnt bones 
She was aware that still identifiable ruins of several household equipment had been discovered in the basement. Um, and she also learned from a crematorium worker that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Remember, their house was completely destroyed in 45 minutes. Things just aren't adding up. <laughs> Things just aren't quite adding up. They really aren't. Although you've got to appreciate Ginny's like They're ingenuity really of doing these, you know, doing this research, doing these uh, experiments. Oh, yeah. Like, good on her. Absolutely. So the reports of sightings would start to follow. Um, during the fire, a woman claimed to have observed the missing children looking out from a passing vehicle. Maybe they did get out of the house. Who okay. knows? Um, a woman who runs a rest area for tourists between Fayetteville and Charleston about 50 miles to the west, claimed to have seen the kids the morning after the fire. Quote, I served them breakfast um, and there was a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court. Along that Hi. same sort of thread, four of the five children were reportedly seen by a woman at a Charleston hotel a week after the fire. And she would say, quote, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. Uh, George and Jenny would write to the Federal Bureau of Investigation about the case and head honcho J. Edgar Hoover himself would respond saying, uh, quote, although I would like to be of, a, of service, the matter related appears to be of a local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this uh, bureau. Um, Hoover's agents said they would assist if they could get permission from the local authorities However, um, not helping the suspicion, the Fayetteville Police and Fire Department would decline the offer from um, the FBI agents. Yeah, it's a bit sudden. But the, the big guns <laughs> yeah, are offering to help you for the, nothing, uh... and you're like, nah, you're <laughs> don't worry, we got this. I mean, yeah. we've granted, we've got no fucking clue what's going on. Don't worry, we've got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so um, the Sodders would find the or seek out the help of a private detective with the most pro like the most 1930s private detective name I could imagine. This investigator's name was C.C. Tinsley. <laughs> private investigator C.C. Tinsley. <laughs> I'm going to find those kids, see? Oh, I get to do the voice again. How exciting. You did. <laughs> And that's I not made an appearance when I for a while. When I, saw that, when I saw the out, when I was writing the outline and I saw the name, I did think actually, I was like, oh, Amy can use a 1920s private investigator voice. I so rarely get to use it. It's, it's <laughs> nice to bring it out every once in a while. <laughs> oh, dear. There's no bones um, in the house. So, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, they, they sought out C.C. Tinsley as their situation would grow increasingly more desperate. Um, Tinsley? learned that the uh, insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's panel that determined the fire was unintentional. How convenient. How convenient indeed. Um, a Fayetteville clergyman told him an intriguing tale about the fire chief, F.J. Morris, and not that he is unable to operate a fire truck despite being the chief of the fire department. Morris allegedly divulged that he had found a heart in the ashes, despite the fact that he had first declared that no remains had been found. 
He buried it at the location after concealing it inside a dynamite box. Um, George and Tinsley would go to Morris and obviously George, probably not exactly over the moon, um, would confront him with this news. Uh, Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director uh, who, after examining the item, told them it was a beef liver that had never been exposed to fire. Soon after, the Sodders heard stories that the fire chief had informed others that the contents of the box had not been discovered at all during the fire and that he had buried the beef liver uh, in the debris with the expectation that discovering any remains would satisfy the family and end the investigation. <laughs> I am um, God. It's not often you're I... speechless. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm just confused. I, I think, right, they want the investigation to end. That's suspect already because essentially what you're doing there is yourself out of job. Unless you're the yeah. one that's under suspicion, then, you know, you're, I mean, it's your job to investigate. So why would you want it to be over if there's no need for it to be over? But, I don't know, the whole like, oh, quickly, let's bury oh. this beef liver in a box just feels like a bit of a fever dream. Why would yeah. that be your natural like, reaction? I don't know. Like, the, part of me is like, he didn't do it with any malicious intent. And he thought he was doing, I don't know, I thought maybe, maybe he thought he was doing the right thing. And, you know, it was a way for the sodders to, to be like, okay, you know, this is the situation. Obviously, they died. Now we can move on and we, we can stop tormenting ourselves. But at the same time, I was, I'm like, that's an incredibly shitty thing to do to a family that is grieving and is desperate to find answers to what happened to their but children. But this is the thing. Like, you're, you're the fucking police. If you don't know what happened, you don't, you, you want to look into it. You want to find out. Like, is there a chance that the family are alive, um, that the kids are alive? That's going to bring a lot more comfort to the family than finding a dead beef liver in a box that is unfucking related to anything. Like, yeah. <laughs> actually do your job and give them good news. Don't immediately think, oh my God, I need to make sure this ends as quickly as possible. To me, this whole thing is just, okay, the police are involved. Like, they they know something. And so they it's in their best interest to just make sure this whole investigation is shut down and that everyone died. And that's just easier than whatever is actually happening. Yeah. So... Uh, the tips and leads persisted for several years following this. Um, George would see a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Bessie. He would drive to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents would refuse to speak to him, which isn't particularly surprising. Some stranger well, no. comes up and is like, yeah, one of your kids is my kid. His parents probably aren't going to be like, yes, come in. Oh, yeah, Let's sure. Have a chat. Probably Good, we've been looking to offload her. <laughs> She's hit the terrible, terrible 12s. Please, please get her away from us. Yeah, thank you. She's yours. <laughs> uh, the Sodders would hire Oscar B. Hunter, a popologist from Washington, D.C., to conduct a fresh investigation at the fire scene in August 1949. The excavation was extensive and uncovered numerous artifacts, including damaged coins partly burned dictionary, but most importantly, and also something that goes against what was said, 
several shards of vertebrae. Mm. Okay. Mm. The plot thickens. Pathologist Oscar Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian uh, Institute for testing and was issued the following uh, report back. Quote, the human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the um, transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the uh, centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal uh, maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy. Remember, the olding, oldest missing solder child was 14. It is, however, possible, or no, although not probable, that uh, for a boy, 14 and a half years to show 16 to 17 uh, maturation. Uh, according to the report, the vertebrae lacked any signs they had been subjected to a fire. And, quote, it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement of the house. I don't like you unanswered like questions, You're having though. a crisis for a second. I don't... <laughs> I just don't like it. Like, I, I don't like watching films where I don't get my questions answered. And I don't like real life events where I don't get my questions answered. Yeah. And this is definitely one of them. Like, okay, yes, there's some vertebrae. Great. It's come from one person. Great. All good signs. But they've not been touched by fire, which they bloody would have been because it burned for eight hours because no one showed up to put it out. And number two, okay, again... We've already been discovered to be planting evidence, i.e. burying a cow's liver in a box, which, again, is just confusing. But why would you then plant more evidence? Oh, I don't, I don't understand. This is very confusing. This is giving you an aneurysm by the looks of it. Sorry. My, my head hurt. <laughs> my head hurt. I'm just a bit, I'm just confused. It's probably Because good. I'm still trying to work out why there's benefit in making people think that they did die there because we've already established that it they, i mean they, their bones aren't so you don't need to plant bones to make them think that well yes they were because if they're nowhere then they might as well have died in the fire am i making sense if there's no evidence whatsoever then we yeah, have yeah. to believe the most likely thing which was that they died in the fire stop planting evidence because that's making you look guilty and it's just it's tormenting the poor poor George and Jenny, it's just tormenting them at this point. Um, yeah, they just want to know what happened. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. The research came to the conclusion um, that the bones were probably present in the dirt that George used to build the memorial for his children in the basement. So it wasn't present in the dirt um, or in the ashes, but in the dirt that George used to sort of cover the site to build his memorial garden, it was present in that instead. Right, so this could be someone completely unrelated to anything. Yeah, it could be entirely unrelated to this. These twists and turns, right? It's like Lombard Street in San Francisco. Yeah. I'm just getting more and more upset. Every time I think I've got a theory, <laughs> something else happens. and I'm like, oh, no, never mind. No idea. Don't know what's happening. You're, after this, you're going to be like, right, Dom, unsolved cases, never again. <laughs> Off the table. No more. No, I do like him. I do like unsolved cases because I like trying to come up with my own theories. What I don't like is coming up with my own theory and then immediately having being told something that like completely blows it out of the water, yeah, which is what keeps yeah, happening. Yeah. Which kind of makes me laugh because I've got a few more 
Unsolved Mysteries outlined, and they're very much in the vein that you think it's the case, and then something else comes along which completely contradicts that and then changes your mind completely. So sorry. There are oh, going to be a brilliant. few more. Can't wait. Coming up. Hey, <laughs> listeners, next time on Horror House, Amy has a breakdown. Fantastic. <laughs> Aren't you glad we did your episode first today? Yeah, I mean, because if I'd have had to do this one and then record my own episode, I would have been like, nah, sorry, my brain doesn't work anymore. I can't do this. I can't read. Uh, um, so uh, even with the results of the report prompting the police to close the case, um, George and Jenny still clinged to the, clinged on to the hope that their children were alive, you know, somewhere, wherever that may be. Uh, the couple would put up the well-known billboard along Route 16 and distributed leaflets promising a $5,000 prize for information resulting in the return of their children. Um, they quickly raised it to $10,000 and the tips would keep on coming in. Uh, the oldest child, Martha, was reportedly residing in a convent in St. Louis, according to a letter from a local woman. The kids... Uh, allegedly resided with a distant relative of Jenny's in Florida, according to someone there. George would travel to the Houston region in 1967 to look into yet another tip. Louis confessed his true identity to a woman uh, there one night after drinking too much, according to a letter a woman had written to the family. He and Maurice, she thought, were both residing in Texas. However, uh, Grover Paxton, which is like the most 1940s name, well, not 19, 1960s name that I think I could ever hear in my life. Grover that sounds Paxton. like a, a private detective name. Grover yeah, Paxton. it's like C.C. Tinsley. Maybe they could go into business together. <laughs> Paxton and Paxton and Tinsley, detective agent. Oh, group. I love it. I would watch that show. Uh, that would be pretty good, to be fair. I was, yeah, I would, I would definitely tune in weekly to watch that. Like Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> uh, so yes, however, Grover Paxton his um his son-in-law and george were unable to communicate with um with the woman the two males she had mentioned were located with the assistance of local police however they denied being the missing sons years later paxton claimed that george's concerns over the denial persisted in his thoughts for the reminder of uh, the remainder of his life i can't imagine sort of having all of these tips come through, thinking this might be the one, and then just you go back to square one every single time. And I I can yeah. imagine this one probably stuck into it, stuck in his mind, you know, like Patson said, you know, it's stuck in his thoughts for the remainder of his life. And you can't afford to not look into one of them. Like, you know, every tip that comes in, you have to yeah. look into every single one because the one that you don't look into might be the one that actually leads you to so it's not like you can't go on the roller coaster yeah. every time someone gives you a new tip. It might be just the tip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. We still managed to sneak one in. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> Ooh, a, a double. That was a How exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> um, but maybe, just maybe, there was a glimmer of hope. Uh, when Jenny went to fetch the mail in 1967, more than 20 years after the fire, she discovered an envelope that was specifically addressed to her. It had a Kentucky postmark, but no return address. Uh, a picture of a man in his mid-twenties was uh, found within the envelope. 
On the back, a mysterious handwritten letter would say, quote, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frank- uh, Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132 or 35. Um, she said George couldn't deny the resemblance to their Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire. The similarities are pretty um, pretty apparent, I'm not going to lie. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, they, that is a pretty it's striking similarity. Pretty on point. So there's mm. there's every chance that could, that handwritten letter could have been legit. But yeah, then where did it come from? Mm. Like, did he write it himself? Did some, is that another tip that someone else is trying to point out to her? Like, yeah. That's pretty crazy. So along with the apparent similarities, uh, such as the black curly hair and the dark brown eyes, they also shared a strong straight nose and an upward tilt in their left brow. Um, they hired yet another private investigator and sent him to Kentucky to locate uh, Louis. However, uh, they lost contact with the private investigator after he took their money and they were unable to find him and they never heard from him again. Taking advantage of a grieving, <laughs> desperate family. That's, uh, that's nice. Yeah, what, what a nice, nice guy. The Sodders were concerned that disclosing the contents of the letter or the town's name would endanger their son. Instead, they changed the billboard to reflect Louis's new picture and displayed a larger version over the fireplace. Uh, the absence of information has been, quote, like hitting a rock wall, we can't go any further, George would say in the Charleston Gazette Mail. However, he would vow to carry on nonetheless, um, admitting in another interview around that time, time is running out for us, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Unfortunately, George Sodder would never find out the answer to that question because unfortunately he would die in 1969 while still clinging to a sliver of hope that there would be a break in the case. Um, With the exception of John, who would never speak of the night of the fire other than to advise the family to accept what had happened and move on, um, Jenny and her surviving children persisted in their search for information concerning the whereabouts of the missing children. To create layer upon layer of separation from the outside world, Jenny built a fence around her land and started adding rooms to her house. Um, From the time of the fire until her own passing in 1989, she would only wear black as a sign of mourning. Um, The deteriorating, worn-out billboard would finally be removed by her family following um, her death, which, like, that adds another heartbreaking twist a little bit. So they, you know, especially George, died while still clinging to some sort of hope that the kids would be there, and then obviously Jenny, you know, Jenny would go soon after. Yeah, it's it's horrible because there must have been a huge part of her that got to a point where she was like, I just want, I either want proof that they're alive, or worst case scenario, I want proof yep. that they died in the fire. Like, so to be at a stage, obviously, again, I'm not a parent, but. For a mother to be at a stage where it's like, I just want to know for definite that my children are dead, because that's better than not knowing. It's just heartbreaking. Absolutely. So together with their own kids, the surviving Sodder children would continue to publicize the case and follow leads and develop their own theories about what happened. Um, And some of the theories were as follows. One of them is that George had tried to be recruited by the local mafia and refused. 
Um, similarly, another theory goes that they tried to extort money for him and he also refused. An additional theory is that someone they knew broke into the unlocked... Why did I say that? You don't break into an unlocked front door. They came in through the unlocked front door, uh, informed the kids about the fire and promised to take, their some, take them somewhere safe. Another theory, if they had survived the fire, um, if they had lived for decades, and if Louis really was in that picture, they decided not to contact their parents out of a desire to protect them. Uh, George and Jenny held on to their, their belief that there were still unanswered questions about what happened to their children, that they may be still alive until the end of their lives. In 2021, Sylvia, the last remaining member of the Sodder family and who had just been three years old when her home burned down, would pass away. Um, and although the family is no longer around, many people still hold out, hold out hope that one day, the truth about what happened on that fateful night in 1945 will finally be uncovered. And that is the case of the missing Sodder children. Amy, <laughs> I know your head's probably swimming. <laughs> but... A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> it's right, mine is too, don't worry. If you had to answer, if someone said to you, what in your heart of hearts do you think happened to the missing Sodder children? What would you say? Would you say they survived? Would you say they died? What, what are you feeling? I don't think they were in the house when it burned down. I think okay. that from, I was going to say my experience, I don't have experience of burning human bodies, but from my knowledge of <laughs> people that have burnt human bodies and just generally like, as morbid as it sounds, I read a lot of books on like what happens to bodies after death and like I've read books on mm-hmm cremation and, and all of that kind of thing that it's just not an option that there weren't any bones left because in order for bones to completely disappear and turn to ash those fires have to get to something like well i think you even mentioned it like 2000 degrees and even then big bones yeah, yeah. things like the pelvis things like you know the bigger vertebrae they don't you know they still have to be pulverized even after cremation so the fact that the only bones that were found were, you know, ones that quite frankly were just juvia that weren't even supposed to be. It just doesn't make sense to me that they were in the house. So I don't believe that they were. I do wonder if the the theory about them being taken from the house before the fire was started is the right one. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay. I don't think they I don't think they died in the fire. They might have died shortly afterwards if they were abducted and then I don't know people panicked or whatever but I don't think they died in the fire yeah I think part of me is like they died in the fire but then again part of me is like if they didn't die in the fire I wouldn't be massively surprised if that makes sense I think with with this one and it's it's one of the reasons why I sort of like unsolved stuff like this pushes and pulls it pushed and pulled me in so many different directions like even when I was doing the outline like I would be like right I'm convinced of this and then something would come up and I'd be like, I, and then it would like make me doubt that and then something else would come up would would make me doubt that and then I'd be like okay so this happened and then something would come up that would make me go okay so actually no this may have so yeah I, I sort it's of sad. change yeah definitely yeah. and I think it is yeah. sad because it's it's not going to be solved you know too much time has passed no. uh, any forensic evidence that was there is now not there. 
um, you know, the family's not around anymore for it for a resolution to have any impact on them anyway. And 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 that is sad, the fact that they they pass not knowing the truth. But yeah, I mean, as you say, uns- unsolved mysteries always make for good stories because you're always a bit rocked by them. Oh, God, so, yes. And this definitely falls into that category. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, uh, Amy, my love, would you like to see us out for this this little bonus one? Absolutely, I would. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us and going on this absolute roller coaster of a story with us. If you're as shaken as I am, then please do feel free to reach out. I can't offer any counselling, but we can talk about it together. <laughs> If you like what we do here at Horror House, please do give us a follow on your podcast app of choice. Write us a review. Say some nice things about us. Reach out to us at the Horror House Instagram because we always love to hear your comments and your ideas for future episodes. Um, it's always good. We, we just like we just like hearing about you. We like chatting to people. So keep us company and reach out to us. Have a look at the Buy Me a Coffee link if you're so inclined and you want to support us financially. That would be absolutely fantastic. We like coffee. I like coffee. It's all good. Check out the merch store. Do whatever you can to support us. And if you don't want to do any of that, then at the very least, you know, thank you for being with us today. And until next time, stay spooky. Stay spooky.